You know, what I like about acting, it's not just about being an actor. It's about being in touch with yourself, but understanding who you are. W-A-L-T. It's the Midnight Disease. Sam Dingman coming to you on the Electro Voice RE20 via the Heritage HA73JR2, the Harrison 32EQ, and the RNC500. Analog tones on a Friday night in the moon cabin. And it's good to be back in the moon cabin, let me tell you. If you listened to part one of today's episode, you know that the intro was recorded in my living room back at the apartment, and it didn't sound too good. (laughs) Thanks for sitting through it. I continue to not understand how all of Knucklehead Podcast Universe can record in their backyard next to a fountain and have it sound like studio gold. And you get me outside of this foam tomb that I call the moon cabin, and I can't make a usable sound. Drives me nuts. Hey, do I have any fellow Orioles fans listening to the show? If I do, I have just one question for you. Ain't the beer cold? Folks, Thank you, as always, for tuning in. I am very excited, as always, to bring you today's conversation, which is with Sarah Benincasa. Now, Sarah is an artist whose work I have been following for over 10 years. Uh, As I told you about briefly in part one of this episode, I first discovered her work on the website Wonkette, where she has written for a really long time. But Sarah has a wide-ranging bio. She is a fellow podcaster. Her current show is called The Social Anxiety Variety Hour. And she used to be a radio host on Sirius XM and was an MTV correspondent for a time and a stand-up comedian. But the main things that you're going to hear us talk about on the show today are acting and writing. The first of which Sarah is new to and the second of which she's been doing since she was eight years old. And in case that sentence construction was too cute, that's acting that she's new to and writing that she's been doing since she was eight years old. And the thing is, Sarah has had a tremendous amount of success in both of those fields. She has been as an actor on shows like Law & Order SVU and Comedy Central's Corporate. And as a writer, she has authored four books, including two that will come up a lot in our conversation today. Real Artists Have Day Jobs, and her memoir, which is called Agora Fabulous, and it's about her battle with agoraphobia. And the thing about Sarah's success in these areas is that, as you are about to hear, she has found that success via two very different approaches. And a big part of what this conversation is about is the value of perseverance and the value of self-tolerance and how sometimes you need one of those things and sometimes you need the other of those things and you aren't always applying them in the same direction. Now, before we go any further into this episode, I want to tell you two things. First, if you haven't already, I would very much suggest listening to part one of this episode, which you can see in your podcast player just before this episode. It's called Sarah Benincasa Part One, Brian Cox Books of Bikini Wax, and that, once you get past the unfortunate living room intro, is a recording that sounds much better. It was recorded here in the moon cabin of Sarah reading an essay that she wrote not long ago called Brian Cox Books of Bikini Wax. And I asked Sarah to read that essay because, in my mind, it was just such a lovely encapsulation of her particular experience of what we here on WALT called the Midnight Disease. 
And we're going to refer to some of the specifics of that essay throughout this conversation. So I think you will enjoy this episode more if you have listened to that essay, and you will enjoy your life more also because it's a beautiful piece of writing. The second thing I want to tell you is that one of Sarah's gifts as an artist is her frankness about difficult things. And one of the things she is very frank about in this episode is suicidal ideation. So please listen with care and remember that if you need help or support, you can always and literally always call 1-800-273-TALK. That's 1-800-273-8255 or text 988. I am glad you're here and I hope you find this conversation meaningful. Let's talk to Sarah Benincasa on WALT. When I hear the phrase, the midnight disease, the first thing I think of is alcoholism. Not specifically my alcoholism, but... It sounds like you wake up at night and drink or something. It sounds like some sort of um, somebody who's really getting into their cups in the middle of the night. But (laughs) I guess for me, there are times when I really know that I'm writing something that is saying exactly what I want it to say. And the joy of that can keep me up well past midnight, tweaking it, figuring it out, waiting before I submit it, or if I'm self-publishing it, um, self-publishing it. Mm-hmm. So it almost, the midnight disease becomes a kind of substance of its own kind, like a, a caffeine. Well, so so dis-ease would be a, a lack of ease. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so if I think of the midnight dis-ease and that concept, that, that phrase, and I apply it to my own life, it would say, um, I cannot find ease and rest until I get this particular story done. I'm really intrigued by the way you just characterized that because um, one thing that I have noticed about, so one of your form, many forms of creativity is Instagram. Is that fair to say? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You use that as a as a tool of expression. You're not just somebody who's like, here's a picture of me doing a thing. Not that that's not creativity, but you're often telling a narrative of your day or your creative process or sharing sharing other people's artwork i do a lot of trying to share yeah. quotes that i like um boosting up artists who i like you know charities that are nonprofits, mutual aid organizations that mean a lot to me yeah interspersed with like i look hot i look hot in this photo <laughs> i spent time on this makeup gaze upon it interspersed with um more you know sort of excerpts from my newsletter serotonin or things like that so yeah that's where i put a bunch of stuff it's not it's definitely not a place where i just put up sort of vacation photos although that's i put those up or photos of my family which in to a limited extent, I might share. Yeah. Well, and it's very refe- reflective of your writing style, which is also also blends a lot of those um, same things that you blend in your Instagram feed. Um, so one of my weird hobbies, I suppose, is looking at the timestamps on people's Instagram stories. Oh, that's interesting. And I have noticed, correct me if I'm wrong, that you often post late at night. Yeah, I'm usually, I'm often up late at night. So that's true. Mm -hmm. And it occurred to me to ask you, I guess, do you feel like Instagram in those late night posting bursts is, does the the creative energy that you put into that medium then fuel the creative energy that you put into writing? say i would say that the creative energy or fuel that i put into sharing art whether it's myself or somebody else's uh that is it's it's a lot easier it takes a less a lot less energy mm-hmm. than the than my other writing does so it's fun and it's simple um however 
I am more inclined to write longer form stuff when I'm not on Instagram, when I've taken it off my phone for a few days or weeks or whatever. And so I think that it's the same energy. I'm just using some of it on that. Now, social media, I think posting on social media is not why I haven't um, written a book manuscript in a while, but it's a way to kind of keep being creative and sharing things with others. Especially for someone who writes very personal pieces the way that you do, having a constant ability to hit the taproot of the thoughts and feelings and emotions that are running through you and give those things a visual manifestation, I can see that feeding back into your writing eventually, even if it's not right away. Oh, for sure. Today I wrote something down with, you know, in my messy handwriting with a calligraphy pen and just took a photo of it and put it up because it this is kind of similar to what I used to do when I did stand-up comedy. I would try out a, a fragment of a thought or I would try out a joke, a sentence or a few sentences that weren't an entire story but that I wanted to include in a story and just see how it did, see how people engaged with it. And obviously you're dealing with the algorithm of a, an electronic social media product. So it's not it's not like if it only got five likes, I'll go, oop, can't use it. I just sort of was interested in the people who did see it. Would it resonate with them? Would they share it? There's no nothing monetary attached to it for me. It's just, um, hmm, this is something I've been thinking about. Let me write this down, put it up. I've been really interested in doing more concrete, um, tangible in the physical world, art or writing, and then sharing it digitally mm -hmm, this year. Mm -hmm. That's something I want to do a lot more of. So, um that's Sarah part has, of that, too. For those of you listening, been taking um, analog photographs at the studio all afternoon. Photographs, just all sorts of things. I mean, we took two of them, but let's pretend that we took a thousand of <laughs> I know. them. I made it sound like we'd had a whole shoot. Really. We had a whole photo shoot. It was semi-suitable for work. We may, Sam may be getting a complaint to the <laughs> studio. No, it's just like, look, actually, we took three because I took a photo of you. I That's took, right. You took a couple photos of me upon my request and my Winnie the Pooh sweatshirt has now been well documented. Thank God. Yes, yes. If anything was going to come out of this, yes. it should be that. Thank you. So as you are doing, th like I saw that post that you put up today where you had written in calligraphy and it's a very inspiring idea. You were basically saying you are entitled to, the if the best you can do today is to just be awake and take some space to rest, that is... A triumph. Yeah, I think it says something to the exactly. It's like, um, it's okay if you don't feel great today. Really, some days all you need to do is exist. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I'm curious to know. I can imagine that post and that message being very, very resonant for folks. Um, if you are looking at who's viewing and reacting to your stories, and that one say pops. Do you find that you then in your writing practice will start to push more in that sort of thematic direction or do you view the thing like are, are those worlds permeable with each other for you? Yeah, for sure. Pending rules. You know, there are some places where you can't. For example, I submitted something to Modern Love recently. Um, you can't submit something to Modern Love if it's been previously published on your Patreon or your Substack or your Medium or whatever. So that was just an original story submitted to Modern Love, right? But um, and so in a lot of places, that's that's the rule. But but sometimes it's not. And so if I know that it's not, and it's okay if it originally appeared in a different form. For example, in one of my books was um, Real Artists Have Day Jobs was first inspired by an essay on Medium. And that's acknowledged in the book. But I was kind of trying that idea out. It feeds it. I don't because I haven't, you know, it, it's sometimes way easier to do the little like casual stuff for a smaller group than to put something else out into the world that might hit a bigger group. So uh, that's a very roundabout way of saying, yeah, it does inform stuff. And I did want to share this idea because it, most of my art that's a letter to the world starts as a letter to myself. Mm -hmm. So if I was thinking today, man, I don't feel that great. Like, I don't feel that great today. And so let me write this thing down. Huh, okay, let me share that with others. Maybe it will help them feel better. I'm really interested in this thing you just said about the idea that there might be an idea that is more tailored and more personal to that smaller group than the larger group. Because I'm not saying this to be provocative, but I resonate the most with the writing that you do that does feel like it's just you talking to yourself. Like the essay that you read on the show today, mm -hmm. 
it feels like you found a way to concretize your inner monologue. And it was so resonant with thoughts that I have all the time and that I'm sure many, many people have all the time. And I was so grateful that you had found a way to capture that and been brave enough and vulnerable enough to share it. So I'm interested in, in this idea of how you think about what kinds of ideas go to which places. How do you, or, or what kind of ideas have different kinds of targets for their final form? Thank you for saying what you said. I think that when we listen to, for example, people who listen to podcasts regularly um, will often say, oh, I don't I don't love this this feature that the host does. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know why they're still doing it. This thing that they always do at the beginning or the middle of the end of the episode. I'm not talking about like reading ads or whatever. We all know why that has to happen. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. but um, You're talking about Mark Maron talking about what he ate in various cities. I was not going to say that. That is <laughs> <laughs> Having done Mark's podcast, I love Mark's podcast. Yeah. I think it's wonderful. He is one of the two best interviewers I have ever sat down with, and he's fucking amazing. I enjoy learning about what he ate. That's However, my favorite part of the show. That's my favorite part. I, no, no bullshit. <laughs> Some people don't like it because they don't want to hear him monologuing. I enjoy that. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I have a, you know, I, I don't listen to every episode. It's been a minute, but some people don't like that. They don't like, they, they like, some people prefer the interviews. They don't want to hear what he went through or how the cats are doing or where he's yeah. living or who uh-huh. he's dating or not dating or what's going on. Um, I enjoy that part. But when you, if you listen to a lot of podcasts or some podcasts or radio shows or whatever, you probably have your fa- your your thing that you think the host is the best at. And if you are a fan of say, a multi-hyphenate artist, right? Like Michael Imperioli, in addition to being a teacher, (laughs) he was once your acting teacher. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Um, In addition to teaching uh, some of my friends, Sam Dingman, Kate Comer, other people. Uh Um, You told me I had a lot of anger inside of me. I think you probably do. Oh, yeah. It's one of my favorite things about you is how like... (laughs) Barely Chill. contained rage. No, it's like how calm and professional you are. But I'm like, oh, on some level, Sam wants to blow things up. <laughs> and that's really great. I relate to that and I love it. Um, but we're not going to. We're going to go to therapy. <laughs> we're going to keep going to therapy. That's the current way I handle things. Although, <laughs> you know, it could change at any time. We should start kickboxing classes. I think that's a great idea. <laughs> you and me starting kickboxing classes would be so amazing. Or just like cutting down large trees. Yeah, but they're, they're like sick. Like they can't, the trees must die so that everything else must live. Like yeah. I, need a, I need a narrative. I need a story. I need it to be justified. Right, right. Tree surgeons. Let's give up the things that we do and just be tree surgeon. <laughs> Dingman Casa tree surgery. If only if we can wear lab coats while we swing axes. Yeah, no, that's fine. Okay. That sounds great. Good. Oh God, I'm glad we worked this out. But <laughs> so Michael Imperioli, right? Yeah. Multi hyphenates. Yeah, he is a teacher. He is an actor. He is, I believe, a writer as well. Yeah. A producer as well. Yeah. He musician. Uh, Musician. That's what I was going to use. Musician. So he's a guitarist. I think he might sing. Mm-hmm. I think he might be a songwriter. So you, somebody who experiences all of these different talents that this multi-hyphenate individual has, he's probably been a director too. I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, he was directing me when he told me how angry I was. Right. So at but, least that one time. But I think he is also hey, directed. Paisan, he knows. <laughs> um, he is. He's. Uh, he's also a meditation teacher. Yep. So he's all these different things. We can assume he's also probably. Uh, been a narrator, a voiceover actor, a z- yeah. right? Somebody who enjoys a specific thing that he does so much may almost resent the other things that he does mm-hmm. or may just be like, why are you doing these other things? You're mm-hmm. you're good at this thing. Mm-hmm. Like somebody who loves his music might be like, give up acting, which would be insane because he's amazing. But right. they might be like, you're so good. You haven't given enough energy to this thing. I want you to keep doing music. Make that the focus. Somebody else might go, oh, like, why are you you're so good at acting? Why are you doing other shit? Why are you taking time to mm-hmm. teach meditation? Mm-hmm. You know? Mm-hmm. And um, from my perspective, if an, when enough people say to me, Sarah, keep doing that thing. Right. It makes me think, it's not that I need to give up the other shit, but it makes me think, oh, that's that's hitting something. That's hitting some yes. shared thing. And the thing that I hear the most when people say, it's not like people are constantly bringing this up to me, but it's basically what you said. I want to feel this, when I hear, when I read, read your book, I felt like you were talking to me. Mm-hmm. You know, if somebody's only heard me on podcasts or whatever, and then they read a book and go, oh, that sounds like you're, I could hear your voice in my head, it just sounded like you. Yeah. That's, yeah. that to me 
I twist myself into a pretzel trying to sometimes come up with fictional show concepts to sell. It always feels fiction feels like a little bit of an F more of an effort for me. And Mm -hmm. it makes me stretch, which is good Mm -hmm. um, because I can't just tell stories based in either a story of myself or of real life shit that I researched. Right. Well, this is making me think of It Worked for Jonah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is the novella that you reference in your essay, Mm -hmm. which I'll let you say. How how do you describe it worked for Jonah? It worked for Jonah is a contemporary magical realist story about uh, a, a descendant of the Jersey Devil family who finds the perfect therapist in the titular Leviathan from the <laughs> Jonah and the Whale story from the Bible. Because uh-huh. the Jonah, the whale from the Jonah and the Whale story needed a job eventually after the Jonah shit was done. So she went and got her degree and became became a therapist specializing in helping mythological figures. <laughs> that should probably be a book. Well, I read It Worked for Jonah. Oh, thank you. It was fantastic. There's also like photos and um, illustrations by my buddy Robert Hack. And yeah, I the illustrations are awesome. Yeah, yeah, he's an amazing comics artist. But I, as I read it, I was really struck by how much I felt like, and again, please correct me if I'm wrong, but I felt like I detected a great deal of the Sarah character that I know from your more personal writing. Yeah, for sure. I was working some of that stuff out through through mythology. Yeah. And you want to be able to speak in that register too. But I'm curious if you're comfortable sharing when you published that, what was the feedback that you got? Was that something where the people who tend to say to you, I like the stuff where it feels like you're just talking directly to me. Did they like it? Were they resistant to it? What What was the... I think most people didn't, most of those people didn't read it mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. it wasn't, it wasn't, um, you know, it's like I've never, I know Joan Didion was a talented screenwriter and novelist, but I've only read Joan Didion's essay. And I'm Nowhere near as talented as Joan Didion. I'm not saying that. But what I'm saying is that there are some folks where I love them in nonfiction. I don't want to fucking read. Yeah. I don't want to read their fiction because mm-hmm. I want their voice. I mean, I guess one reason why I've begun to enjoy acting is that I I get to pretend to be somebody else and I don't have to make them up like they're already made up. And yeah. I just I don't have to make them a version of myself. I'll just be whatever they are. And that's like fun for totally. a minute. <laughs> well, it's making me think about. So when we had that that little digression about Marin's podcast, mm-hmm. it made me realize something that I've never thought about before, which is that the reason that I like the intros on that show even more than the interviews, which I also love, is I tend to think of him as a conversationalist more than an interviewer. Mm. And what I like about the intros is it's him in direct conversation with himself. And he is as hard on himself as he is on a guest. He's as probing with himself as he is with a guest. And it it's not that he explicitly says this is what's happening, but what I feel is this trust that he really is, that the person he is in conversation with somebody is not a put on. No, it's it, not. It's not an act. It's, it's really him. And he's talking to them with genuine curiosity. Um, yeah, and but that's also how he fucks you because you're as a guest, you're like, oh, I'm just having a conversation. Especially if you've listened to the podcast, you're like, oh yeah, you know, or if people have worked with him or had friends in common or whatever, you're like, oh yeah, I'm just fucking talking to Mark. Like, cool, I'm talking to Marin. Like, right. you know, that was the first time I'd ever met him in person. But we certainly had plenty of friends in common and shit. And you're just like, ah, yeah, yeah. And then he just fucking drills in, and you're right. like, ah. Right. <laughs> and you come out of there, and you're like, fuck, I said some shit that I think my mom might get upset about. <laughs> I was so anxious about. I mean, I've more my more, I think I've more I, I have more media training and experience now. That was like a decade ago, but mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I remember being like f- so anxious afterwards like fuck, what did I even fucking say? <laughs> so I'm not getting you to confess to any murders today, it sounds no, like. No, <laughs> no. But um tomorrow, maybe. Tomorrow. Okay. I've had okay. too much coffee today. But, you know, what you're describing I think is also what makes his show good yeah. is that um you know, the byproduct of him approaching it that way is that these end up being very revealing conversations. But this affinity thing that I'm attempting to describe, I thought of it in part because of what you just said about acting Mm. is that, or it worked for Jonah is these other, because you have such a practiced fluency with being in touch with your self and expressing that self with very little filter 
when you find yourself in environments where there is more of a filter, a fictional story layer, a performance that's being shot with a camera and lit in a certain way, whatever the case may be, that central unis, the the truth of, of your actual essence is able to be closer to the surface, perhaps. Yeah, I think the task, I mean, look, I've never taken, wait, no, this isn't true. I took one acting class for the <laughs> non-theater major because I needed to fill an elective at Emerson or were, something. Were you told that you had a lot of anger? <laughs> no, I was not. <laughs> Steve Yakutis did not tell me that. Steve Yakutis okay. was a delightful professor of acting. Okay. Um, but also, I think Imperial, well, well we've agreed that, that Michael Imperioli, correct. <laughs> Probably yeah. more correct back then because how old were you? Oh, I would have been at that time 26, 27. So like how many more years of therapy have you had since then? Uh, a number. <laughs> yeah. So uh, Michael Imperioli, a seer. Yes. Was he doing Sopranos at that time? He was. Fucking love these fucking New York theater dorks who will be on like, they'll be on the greatest fucking show. Oh my God. Like the biggest fucking show. And they'll still be like, well, I must go to Esper studio where I studied and like yes. teach clowning or something. Can I tell you, they, yes, all of them were, so three of the teachers were on the Sopranos. Love that. Um, the other teacher was this guy named Nick Sandow, who at the time was not a household name, but- I know Nick's name. Yeah. He, Why do I know his Nick's name? He was Caputo on Orange is the New Black, which yeah, hadn't- cool, cool come out yet at the time that I was in this program, but these were hardworking professional actors who every Tuesday night would spend minimum two and a half hours in a theater with up and coming actors like us. And we would go up and we would do our scenes. And it, sometimes it would be 45 minutes, an hour and a half of watching us do the scene, having us do the scene again, asking us questions, telling us that we had unaddressed anger that we should maybe work on. Um, it was, they were never in a rush to get out of there. I fucking love that. Even if they had been on the set for 14 hours that day. New York, I was going to say, New York actors will do a 14 hour fucking day and will be like, now I'm going to go teach aerial silks or whatever their passion yes. is. Yeah. Talk about the midnight disease. I mean, it's amazing. They and and there was this other layer that they, it was at this studio called Studio Dante that uh, Michael's wife, uh, whose name is Victoria, Victoria. Yeah, 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 and they love Dante Alighieri. They have a bust of Dante Alighieri as soon as you walk into their home, which I know from watching the Architectural Digest tour of their home, where Michael Imperioli caught is the crew like doesn't know who Dante is. And he's like, you don't know who Dante is, and it's so <laughs> funny. Um. So you're in this space that he and his wife built together mm -hmm. to their exact specifications. You're being given the gift of having your own work critiqued and analyzed by a master practitioner. And oh, by the way, they were also mounting full-scale productions at this theater so that Michael often either produced or directed. And their kids were young at that time. Their kids are adults now, but their kids would have been young at that time. That's it, nuts. It was just all-consuming. And this is actually a really interesting segue because one of the biggest things that came up for me in first reading and then listening to your essay is that it seemed like COVID, your experience with having COVID, brought up some thoughts about your relationship to making mm -hmm. and writing specifically yeah. that you had been wrestling with for a long time. And or or maybe not wrestling with, but sensing within yourself this idea, it seemed that it's harder to generate the fervor that is necessary to churn things out that might eventually be sold well, as projects. I'm, yeah, I mean, I'm not living in active alcoholism and active workaholism anymore. Right. And those were the. I thought that my worth was how many books I published. Mm -hmm. I really constructed my identity around books. It wasn't even how much was in the bank account. It was how many books do I have out? How many books am I working on? How many? And then it became, oh, okay, also how many TV or film deals, mm -hmm. if mm -hmm. at all. Mm -hmm. But what's fascinating to me about this essay is that it starts off seeming like it's going to be an essay about moving away from writing. Mm. But in the end, it wraps back around and becomes, to my ear at least, 
an essay about remembering why you write. Yeah, and realizing at the end, this is enough. This mm-hmm. essay right now is enough. Mm-hmm. I It seems that I still can sometimes say exactly what I want to say exactly when I want to say it. Is it the most successful thing I've ever written? No. Is it the best thing I've ever written? Absolutely not. But it was a bit of a breakthrough in honesty, especially in a, a time I needed to show myself I could still write, even with the brain fog and the dizzy spells and, and yeah. having COVID. There's this interesting element in the essay where you're saying that at this time when you were recovering from your agoraphobia, mm-hmm. you took this job making coffee mm-hmm. and you would get there every morning at six and um, there was a certain amount of satisfaction and some amount of realization, like maybe I could do this forever. Yeah, like I can do this. That What a wonderful feeling. And the new, the sensual pleasure of smelling the coffee, whether it was the whole beans or the ground beans, I was not a coffee drinker at the mm-hmm. time. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that didn't make a coffee drinker out of me. I just enjoyed it. I enjoyed yeah. providing people with what they wanted that morning. But... You also, in the essay, say, ultimately, I moved away from that. Yeah, because I, I, what I realize now in reflecting on it is that I, I, it, wasn't, it wasn't the substance or the process. It was the feeling. Yes. That's the thing that, that I think is ideal when we work, whatever it is that we do, to have the feeling of, yes, the deep satisfaction that goes, that I felt at the end of the essay. Um, and it wasn't, it's, it's not forever. It's mm-hmm. just, you feel that moment of, yeah, I said what I wanted to say. Like Brian Cox figures out how to channel booking bikini waxes <laughs> back into acting, you found a way to channel the satisfaction that you felt in this other circumstance back into writing. Yeah, I was actually, I was, because I at the time that we're recording this podcast, um, it's, you know, a few months after I wrote that essay. And um, <laughs> I was walking on these streets. I was in Soho and I saw all these huge production trucks and I was like, this is a movie or this is a big budget streaming show. And it was Succession. <laughs> and uh, but I, <laughs> Brian! I, so I'm like walking around and I see uh, I see a table with what I think are free samples. This is not the first time this has happened to me. <laughs> doesn't happen in L.A. because they're all going to be on a lot or like squirreled away somewhere. Right. So. My instinct is, oh, my gosh, there must be like a Trader Joe's or maybe the Starbucks is giving out free samples or something because that does sometimes happen on these streets. And so I start to walk over and then I stop myself. I'm like, this is craft services, Sarah. <laughs> Do not like I got really close, not close enough that that any like uh, the, to terrify a PA, but like I just or or the crafty people. But I just was like, dude, no, this is for somebody. And then I like realize i see the crew sweatshirt and i texted a friend of mine who's a a cast member on the show not brian cox and i was just like yo i think i just almost ate ate your food like not your food but like the crew's food like i think i just ate the food and they were like oh my god (laughs) like what what a whimsical ass existence (laughs) how fucking silly and like to you know there's a memoir title what a whimsical ass existence in the essay that that i wrote um, and that you very kindly had me read. I talk about having suicidal ideation, which didn't just happen when I was young. I wasn't just, but that was a big crisis moment. But there was a big crisis moment in the beginning of my thirties, and right before my first book came out, and and how great remembering that stuff. It seems so far away and unreal until it happens again. But mm-hmm. sometimes, like reading about it, I don't usually reread my shit. But reading once it's published, I'm like, okay, it's out there in the world. But Reading about it again and saying it out loud is a much safer way of remembering it for me than actually going through a suicidal episode again, which is not to say I won't. But um, but like it just, you know, kind of reminds me like, oh, I'm so grateful, you know, Mm -hmm. and did did writing that essay manifest into existence walking through succession season four and almost stealing the crew's snacks? (laughs) I don't know. Plenty more to come with Sarah Benincasa on The Midnight Disease. We'll be back after a short break. You're listening to WALT. (laughs) 
when you were having those experiences of ideation, mm-hmm. were you writing actively at that time? No, 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 no. I was at that. Well, uh, I, it's happened at different times in my life. When I was young and it was the worst, like when I was 20, 21, 22. No, I was a college student, not doing much of anything. When I was 30, uh, my f- I, I was in revisions on my first book, which okay. is Agora uh-huh. Fabulous, Dispatches from My Bedroom. So I was reliving sort of some of the things I'd written about, but I also had gone off my meds. Don't mm-hmm. do that. Uh, gone off Prozac. Don't do that. And I had said goodbye to a boyfriend who was deployed uh, to a war zone, hmm. which was not. So there was a lot of things going on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> not yeah. great. Uh and I was also at that time, by that time, this was not an issue when I was 21 or 22, but, but, but when I was 30, I was certainly, you know, drinking. My drinking had picked up. Yeah. Yeah. But did you find or do you find that being a more regular writer mm. affects the way that you are able to navigate those episodes of ideation? Um. Well, I know that. I know I can get through it now. I know I've uh-huh. never had an emotion that killed me yet. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So I know it's possible to get through it. Yeah. Um, I know what it's like to wake up and have such obsessive cycles of thinking about killing yourself that you don't take it one day at a time. You take it sometimes 15 minutes at a time, five mm-hmm. minutes at a time. Mm-hmm. Um, I know what that's like. I know what it's like to get to the end of the day and things have gotten better and to feel so relieved and then terribly sad that you have to go to bed because it'll start all over the next day. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But I also know that feelings aren't facts. Mm -hmm. I know that it passes. So, you know, I can always go, well, if I if I get through this one, I can maybe it'll be a story one day. What was it like, say, with Agora Fabulous to write about these issues to express yourself about these feelings rather than just sitting with them. And I ask you this question because in another interview for this podcast um, with Aaron McKeown, they were talking about how for a time writing songs was a way not of processing feelings, but of running. Oh, like by, like spiritual bypassing. A friend of mine said to me today, oh, that's so relatable that Aaron talked about that. A, a, friend of mine said to me today, um, you're smart, you're good at spiritual bypassing, but you're feeling the feelings. And uh-huh. I was like, you're, what does your smart have to do with it? And then I thought, oh, oh, um, what what my friend is trying to say is that you know how to manipulate language to bypass. So don't need to feel it. It just goes into the song or it just goes into the book or it goes into the this or but then you're not feeling the feelings. But when you think about Agora Fabulous, say. Mm. And I know you, I mean, you said you were 30, right? When you published that? Uh, it came out when I was 30. I wrote it. No, I'm sorry. Um, I got super depressed again when I was in revisions on it when I was 30. Uh-huh, uh-huh. I turned 31 and a few months later, the book actually came out. But we got the deal when I was 29. So I was writing it from okay. t- ages 29 through 30, very early 31. So you're still a very young person. Oh, yeah, yeah. When you think about that kind of writing, whether it was then or now, what is your relationship to that idea of are are you spiritually bypassing via writing? I yeah, it was a well, um I'm still proud of the book. I still like the book. I think the book was as honest as I felt I could be at that time. Uh-huh. uh-huh. I would be different now. It would be even more honest. I would write with a greater perspective and a greater honesty. I kind of, I rounded the edges. I sanded the edges on the sharp edge table with some of it. But, and it feels when people read it, sometimes the critics described it as raw in a positive sense. Thank Mm -hmm. God. I was really blessed and honored by some very nice reviews for that book. Um, And they described it as raw and it is raw. It could have been raw-er, but that was about as raw as I was ready for it to be. Yeah. Well, and this goes back to what you're writing about with such eloquence in the Brian Cox essay, which is, what is this writing serving? Mm. Is it serving some kind of craven desire to have a certain number of books published or to highlight certain elements of your personal history or of fictional characters' history because you know they're like grabby and the kind of things that will bring you attention? Or are you writing a letter to yourself? They say, write the kind of book you want to read. 
Yeah. And that doesn't mean write the kind of book that sells, unfortunately. When I get away from write the kind of book you want to read, it tends to feel a bit fake. Over the course of, of our conversations, we have talked about a bunch of different things that you have been either temporarily or for a while very compelled by and moved away from, whether it's mm. acting or stand-up comedy or being a coffee sommelier or being a massage therapist or being a teacher and any of these things. What do you think it is that always keeps you coming back to writing? Why oh. doesn't that one ever fall off the boat? It's, it's, this, it's telling the story. I find it deeply comforting to write. And I will say, this is funny, I haven't done quite a, enough of it yet to know for sure. Who knows? But, you know, now that I'm in my 40s and allowing myself to act, which is so funny, it's so funny to me. I don't know. It's not funny to anybody else. I find it entertaining. I'm like, <laughs> what the fuck? I'm just like, you know what? This is fucking fun. That's sort of a missing, something that's been missing for me because I wouldn't permit myself to go in the direction of it um, because I thought I wouldn't be good enough. Yeah. And now I'm just like, just show up and say the stuff. And when the director yeah, tells yeah. you something, you just do it the way they say. And that can just be how you act. Like, you don't have to be great at it. You can be good enough. Like, I, that was the thing. I had to get to a place where I would allow myself to be good enough at something uh -huh. to say that I love it rather than being like, no, you have to be so good. Right. I right, just be good right. enough at acting. I'm good enough to have fun. Like, that's pretty cool. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. I don't know if I answered your question. Well, I, you you did. <laughs> Storytelling. It's stories. It's the stories. I never, it's deeply comforting to hear stories, to write stories, to read stories, to watch stories, to hear, all that. I think you answered it when you said, it's funny to me that I'm an actor now. I think it's so funny. Because that's that's you, <laughs> to my ear, that's you as a writer saying, in the story of Sarah, which you are fluent with and... <laughs> have an ability to convey in words you have this this kind of dual consciousness for yourself of you're a character in the story of sarah and you are also sarah and acting it seems to me lives in a different category than writing does because acting is almost something that sarah the character in the story is trying whereas sarah the author of the story of Sarah really <laughs> likes this plot twist where it's a Sarah fun plot an twist. I'm like, this is fun. And also I don't need to, um, in anything I try, I want to achieve more and do more, but I don't with acting. It's never been a, because it's never been a part of my identity to be uh -huh. a thespian, to be an actor, to <laughs> whatever. Um, that's why it's so fun and probably why I, I don't put pressure on myself with it or get in my ego about it or mm -hmm, mm -hmm. do despair and compare to others because why would I expect to be better than anybody else? This is something I just started doing the past few years and I have an enormous amount of respect for people who are incredible at it. Mm -hmm. And so to me, the fact that I get to occasionally play on a stage or on a screen or whatever with people who've made this their life's work that's just like it's like fantasy baseball camp like wow i yeah. get to really watch and learn from people in the big leagues and by big leagues i don't necessarily mean they're famous i mean they're just really fucking good yeah yeah but is that language that you can give yourself when you're writing like are you able to say it's okay to just if this is just good enough um like what a what a treat to be able to do it because Mm, I have yeah, a sense. Helpful. <laughs> I, well, I have a sense that you hold. This is dramatic language, and it's an oversimplification. But you're talking about acting and painting, say, mm -hmm. as these kind of um, creative trifles, almost. Those are things. Here's how I think about it. Those are things other people are good at. Uh -huh. Writing is what I'm good at. Yeah, they're not creative trifles. And I know you were being, uh, you were exaggerating, but like. That's something other people are excellent at. Right. This is what I'm excellent at. This is my thing that I'm excellent at. And some other people are also excellent at writing, but so am I. Right. But this is the mystery, Sarah. Are you excellent at writing because you hold it so sacred? Mm. And are you a good actor because you don't take it too seriously? I am absolutely a good actor because I don't take it too seriously. Uh -huh. I know that. And I'm a good actor because... 
I'm a good actor because of the intense amount of respect that I have for people who are wildly better than me and the intense amount of respect that I have for the intense amount of non-competitive respect like it's an honor to be in a room auditioning sure with other actors like and it's so it's fun to me it's like icing on the cake like wow i'm alive and i get to do this but i think that's why i'm a good actor because i'm like just like yeah sure like i'm not like no i'm gonna make this choice because i'm like i have no authority to make these choices but do you <laughs> let's unpack that for a second because do you think that means do you think that makes you a good actor because it means you're a, a giving scene partner because you're like, I'm going to go with what this person is doing because they're the actor and that the byproduct of being very open to your scene partner's stimuli makes you really great to be in a scene with. And therefore, that makes you become a good actor. Like, what is it about that humility that you think translates into being a good actor? Uh, I think I'm empathetic. Mm -hmm, I mm -hmm. think I also grew up in a household where sometimes I had to pretend to feel ways I didn't. Uh -huh. So there's that psychological aspect of it. But I also think I'm empathetic and I want other t people to feel met where they're at. Mm -hmm, and so that, mm -hmm. and that's a skill that I think you know you need to have when you're acting um there's all sorts of shit about acting i don't know about and don't know how to do and don't even know that it exists but um i think the reason i'm reasonably good at it for someone who's untrained is that i have an, a great amount of respect for those who are trained and i'm always willing to listen and learn and take notes that's mm -hmm. part of it too is like when you show up as sort of a blank canvas just ready to absorb and to listen and to watch at in, in any arena, I think that if you've got even a shred of natural talent at it, you're probably going to do all right. I mean, why do, we, why do we return to beginner's mind? Because it helps us to learn and to be present. And eventually, when you're a fucking titan and you can just like chew the shit out of a scene like Brian Cox, for example, or mm -hmm. any one of the main cast members of Succession, um, then by all means, get in your ego, have an ego about it, have preferences, have very specific needs. And what I don't know about any of that. I'm just like, I'm like a, a fucking, like I just got my driver's license. Right. But, but you're describing this age old thing in acting, which, you know, like as we were alluding to earlier, I, I spent a lot of my life studying and it's one of the most fascinating things about it, which is that you're not supposed to see the technique. If you're seeing that, I mean, unless it's Shakespeare, say, or certain kinds of very, very formalistic classical performance, if we see that you're acting, you're doing something wrong, no matter how much technique you are bringing to bear that is resulting in this evident performance, acting is maybe the one art form where if you are able to take the shortcut of just being yourself without artifice, because you don't actually know what you're doing. You're actually doing a better job than the Juilliard trained person who has so much Alexander technique and Stanislavski and sense memory exercises in their head that there's a film between them and the text. Well, the ones who are trained, like whether they come out of Yale or Juilliard or wherever, who are super trained, but and yet you don't detect it because they're so natural. That's well, incredible to me. Because those are the masters. Yes, because then because they have taken it all inside and it's inside them and they've done whatever prep work they need to do. They're not making it other people's business. They're doing whatever prep work they need to do. They've it's in them, it's in their soul, it's in their mind, it's whatever. And those people are like the true I'm like, you're a Jedi. But but Going back to Brian Cox's memoir, he talks about what he calls front foot acting, which is like somebody like leaning <laughs> on their front foot and declaiming like, I yeah. am here. And, blah. and it's it's not that he or some of the favorite actors he mentions are the most. It's not that they're the most low key actors or the uh -huh. most like I mean, they'll put on a fucking show, but th you feel that they are the part. Yes, it's inhabited. Yeah, they and then they they show up, they do it. And then they go home. And that's mm -hmm. how he talks about showing up, doing it and going home and how he's not into, you know, method shit. And he has a lot to say about American actors in particular. And blah, blah. Jeremy Strong. <laughs> yeah, but he's also very complimentary of he's like, you know, here's the, like in his book, he's like, yeah, I don't like that. But you know what? Like the work is excellent. He's like, he is never less than excellent yeah so he's yeah. like so the fucking it's not for me but the fucking result is right there exactly and which is and exactly how he that. would say it the fucking result yeah 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 and, it, and you're just like there it is yeah you know like that and i i respect that 
actors are fucking weird. People have weird rituals and shit. I'm just like, yeah, uh-huh. So most midnight disease question ever. Yes. For you, when you are going to sit down to write, mm-hmm. can you do it anywhere? Can it be any time of day? Or do you have to be writing with a certain instance? Do you have to be with a calligraphy pen? Do there have no. to be candles? What is your... Yeah, it can be anywhere, any time of day. I just have to be in the right mood. A lot of times the story knocks around in my head for days, weeks, months, years until it finally comes out. And it comes out when I'm ready for it to come out. And I kind of surf the wave of the adrenaline and the inspiration. Mm-hmm. And I get it done. And how do you know that an idea is an impulse worth following? Um, I, it just, it won't, it won't leave. It keeps coming up. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's how I know that I need to do something with it. <laughs> Midnight Disease is hosted, produced, mixed, and edited by me, Sam Dingman. My thanks to Sarah Benincasa for being my guest on the show today. Find Sarah's writing on Substack, sarahjbenincasa.substack.com. I will, of course, put a link to that in the show notes. And why not pick up a copy of one of her books, Agora Fabulous or Real Artists Have Day Jobs. I will have links where you can do that in the show notes as well. And speaking of places to read writing, I've got a Substack too, my friends. Some of you have already joined me there, and I thank you. If you would like to be part of Club Stack, nobody calls it that, get yourself over to samdingman.substack.com. You can subscribe to Sarah's Substack while you are there. Our show art is by M.K. Cummins, and you can reach us with any thoughts about anything you hear on The Midnight Disease by emailing midnight at walt.fm. We'll be back next week with another great conversation and a new episode of Dingmantics, which we didn't do this week because, well, the Dingmantics episode became the Sarah Benincasa essay. Anyway, all of that and more next week. Thank you for letting your madness ride with mine. I'll talk to you soon, and until then, keep driving. You're listening to WALT. Homegrown. Homemade radio.